0: Bibles now if you would please and we'll open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are starting this 15th chapter today and we notice as we're as we've been studying 1 Corinthians that Paul is kind of moving in and out of different subjects as he goes through this and presenting different topics but here we come to the 15th chapter and Paul stops here to concentrate on one single doctrine. This is an extended section about one doctrine. And this chapter contains the greatest doctrine of of Christianity because our entire system of belief rests on what Paul has to say in this chapter. This is the resurrection chapter. In all the rest of the Bible, there is no other place or no other passage where we find such a very clear doctrinal view of Christ's resurrection. And this is very important. Because the conclusion of the matter is that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Everything that we believe is in vain. If Jesus didn't come out of that grave, there is not one of us here today who has salvation. But it's not just that Jesus came out of the tomb. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, we are so uh, so pleased and happy to be able to preach about Christ's resurrection from the dead because his resurrection means that we have a living Savior. Right now he is alive, but this chapter is also given to teach us something else, and Paul concentrates on this, and that is what happens to our bodies. What happens to us because of Christ's resurrection? So Paul's going to deal with this in First Corinthians chapter 15. For the next two weeks, we're going to discuss the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul begins this chapter. He starts out with an explanation of the gospel. Then he's going to tie that in to what it means for what will happen to our bodies. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word today. If you haven't already done this... You should uh, mark in your Bibles 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you want to pencil it in on the side, underline whatever means that you, that you use to do this. You ought to note this because this is the Bible's explanation of the gospel. The word gospel, we know, means good news. But here Paul tells us exactly what that good news is. Now today we're going to read down to verse number 11, but the sermon's only going to go as far as verse number 4, then part number 2, next week we come back and we'll pick up verses 5 through 11. So if you'd please look at First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number 1. He says, "...moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain." For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, verse number five, He, he starts to tell us about those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ and that he was seen of Cephas then of the 12 and after that he was seen above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain under this present but some are fallen asleep that means that some of them were alive who saw the resurrection but some have already passed away Verse 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and also or so ye believed. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We thank you for uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand this better there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, I pray, Lord, that they just might pay very close attention to everything that's said today as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what must be believed in order for people to be saved. Lord, use the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I hope that you remember the three central issues that we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians. I've said them over and over as we've gone through our study. But there are three main issues that Paul is dealing with in this book. All of those issues begin with the letter M. Immorality, immaturity, and immortality. And We've covered two of those. In the first 14 chapters, we talked about immorality in the Corinthian church. And we've also talked about the immaturity. How they use those spiritual gifts that God had given wrongly. Well... Why does Paul come to this section, and why does he stop here and talk about immortality? Well, the reason is, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and particularly, what will happen to a believer's body when he dies. What I'm telling you today, most of you that are here today, this is old news to you. You've heard these things before. But in Paul's day, Christianity was new. Christianity was just getting started, and there were competing philosophies about what would happen to the body after it dies. Now today, we're seeing more of this in America. As America becomes a a more pluralistic society, there's less Christianity around, and so there are many people who don't understand the very things that I'm going to talk to you about today, and some of these very same philosophies that were present in the time of the Apostle Paul, they're present with us today. We're 2,000 years removed from that time, and yet there are still people who misunderstand about the body of people who die. What happens after you die? Well, I want to start here with, with three popular world philosophies at the time of Paul. Three different ideas that people had. The first one was hedonism. And in this philosophy of the afterlife, they say there actually is nothing after death. There is no life after death. So the goal of hedonism is pleasure. It's to do everything that you can in this life right now, now while, you're, while you're living because you've only got one shot at life. You've only got one chance. And when this is over, there's nothing beyond it. Hedonism was expressed in a beer commercial a few years ago. You may recognize this, you beer drinkers. Um, you might recognize this, but, but it's uh, you only go around once in life So grab for all the gusto that you can get. And that's the philosophy of hedonism. There is nothing after this life, so I better do everything that I possibly can to enjoy myself right now. There are no consequences for anything that I do because there's nothing after life. The second philosophy that was prevalent in Paul's time was the idea of pantheism. And pantheism, as it regards the afterlife, says that you are absorbed into God. Pantheism is the belief that the entire universe, everything that you see around you is God. So that God is, is in the flowers, God is in mountains, God's in birds and bees. Everything that you see, that contains some part of God and everything is God. And so they believe that when a person dies, the body decays. And it as it decays, it's absorbed back into this universe. And so what pantheists believe and this is really the belief of new age people today, what they're trying to do is get in touch with this whole idea or the realization of their oneness with the universe. When they die, they're just absorbed into God. The third idea at Paul's time was Platonism. And in Platonism, they believe that the body disappears, but the soul lives on. Platonism, as you probably recognize, is the philosophy of Plato. There's a lot of things that are involved in that, and we don't have time to go into it. Neither could I probably explain to you everything that Plato Plato taught. But as it concerns the afterlife, Plato espoused an opinion that was prevalent among the people at the time called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were people who believed that the soul itself is eternally existent. It's always been here, but the body is not. The body will die, and the body will disappear, but the soul lives on. All three of those philosophies are wrong. There is an afterlife. There is no such thing as nothingness. You don't become God when you die. And when a Christian dies, his soul goes to be with the Lord. And the Bible teaches that eventually his body will also. So this is why Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, because it's the gospel that clears up all of this confusion. And so if the Corinthians were concerned about immortality, what they needed to do was just go right back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that'll explain to us what happens to the body. The gospel is the very basis for our understanding. So this is what we want to do. We want to look at the gospel. Today, we call, I'm calling this an analytical description or an analytical view, an analysis of the gospel. So let's just hold this gospel up, and we're going to see what it's all about. The first thing I want you to notice regarding the gospel is actually the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel of Christ because the means of getting this information out to you, what this is all about, comes by preaching. Now, if you look at the first verse where Paul uses the word gospel, you also see the word preach there. Gospel and preach actually come from the same root word. Gospel means good news, and to preach means to declare the good news, to proclaim the good news. We also get the word evangelize from this very same word. When Paul got up to preach, you never wondered what Paul was going to speak about because Paul was preaching the gospel. Now, I've heard many preachers in my day, and uh, sometimes I wonder when they get up in the pulpit, what is he going to say? And then when he gets done speaking, I think, why in the world did he say what he said? Because he wasn't preaching the gospel. There are some times that, that we just absolutely get confused about things that we're supposed to say. You ever been in a position where you just didn't know what to say? You, have you ever been caught like that? You just don't know what to say? I want to tell you a little story here for just a moment this morning. Um, I really like Jeff Chambly. Jeff Chambly is just an all-around good guy, I think. I like him. Uh, Jeff is a, is a fast-thinking person. Jeff has a job at Safeway, and if you didn't know this, recently Jeff was promoted at Safeway, and... Of course, he's doing a good job over there. I'm going to tell you why Jeff got promoted. One day, Jeff was in the store. He was in the produce section. And there was a little old lady that came up to him, and she asked Jeff. She said, she said I want to buy a half a head of lettuce. Well, Jeff had never been asked that before. So Jeff decided, well, the thing that I need to do, I need to go find the store manager. So he walked all the way over to the other side of the store to find the store manager to ask him what to do about this. So he found the store manager, and he says to her, he says, uh, I, there's this idiot over there in the produce section who wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. But well, what he didn't know was that little old lady had followed right behind him all the way over there to the other side of the store. And uh, she heard everything that he said to the manager. But Jeff's a fast thinker. So he caught this little old lady out of the side of his eye. Just in his peripheral vision, he realized that she was there. So quick as a flash, he said, there's this idiot over there in the produce section who wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. And this sweet dear lady right here wants to buy the other half. (laughs) Well, the store manager thought, that's fast thinking. He realized that. He, he, He saw that Jeff's a fast thinker. So he says, son... He said, son, you're pretty fast on your feet. You're a fast thinker. He said, where are you from? And Jeff said, well, I'm from North Carolina, sir. I'm from the place where they have the ugliest women and the best basketball teams. And his boss said, son, do you realize that my wife is from North Carolina? And Jeff said, well, what team does she play for? (laughs) Sometimes we get stuck about things that we need to say. But when the Apostle Paul got up to preach, there was no mistaking about what he was going to talk about. He was going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now sometimes uh, people will go to church and the preacher will get up to preach. And he'll stand up there and he'll say, Bless God, you are dying and you are going to go to hell. You are a sinner. And if you don't do something about it, hell is wide, gaping open for you to receive your unworthy soul. Then he goes on into talking about you're drinking and you're cussing. You're running around with other women. And people go out of the church and they say, Wow, he really poured it on today. He really preached to us the gospel. No, he didn't. That's not the gospel. That's the bad news. Now, for sure, you have to know the bad news. All of those things are true. You are a sinner. Without Jesus Christ, you will die and you will go to hell if you haven't trusted him. But that's not the good news. The good news is what Jesus came to do to correct all of that bad news. And that's what the, uh, the gospel that, that Peter, uh, Paul preached. The preaching is the means by which we get this good news. Paul said earlier in this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So you don't have to wonder what Paul is going to say. He's going to preach the gospel. Now, interestingly, when Paul got up to preach, he didn't say something like this. He didn't say, Everybody, open up your Bibles to John 3.16. Paul didn't do that. And that's because... He didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't completed at that time. And so the only thing that Paul could do was to turn to the Old Testament Scriptures, and he began to preach in the Old Testament, and he pounded on this gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to hear sermons from the Old Testament. That's all that Paul could preach. He had the Old Testament to preach on, and he preached about Christ. You may remember there was an incident after Jesus arose from the dead, He appeared to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And the Bible says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the Scripture, and all the Scripture, the things concerning himself. What Scripture was he expounding? The Old Testament. The Old Testament Scripture. That's what Peter preached. Stephen preached it. Paul preached it. And we can still preach it today out of the Old Testament. So, Paul preached it. Paul uh, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never have to wonder what he's going to say. Now, notice two things then about preaching the gospel. The first is that the gospel must be received. He says in verse number one, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. The gospel must be received. Now, today, each of you that are listening to me, you are either receiving the gospel or the message that I preach is going in one ear and out the other. For some of you, it may be that the gospel never even gets into your ears at all. It's just like me standing here and beating a tennis ball against the wall back there because it keeps bouncing off from you. You're not really taking in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that there were some people that would hear the gospel that way. When he gave the parable of the sower, he said that sometimes you sow the seed... You put the seed down on the ground and the seed falls on hard ground. And it never takes root. It never starts to grow. But then he says there are other people in which the seed is sown into good ground and the ground envelops that and the seed begins to grow. It produces uh, the plant that it's supposed to and the fruit comes off of that. So there are many people that when they hear the gospel of Christ, they're not actually hearing things. They're not listening to it. They're not receiving it. But you absolutely must receive the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's no other way that you're going to be saved except by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, there may be some people here today, you're listening to me preach this message, and this message will not move you. I can talk to you about the death of Jesus Christ. I can tell you how he went to that cross for your sins. I can tell you how he rose from the grave, but it won't make a bit of difference to you at all. Instead, you will sit there. You won't be moved by it. It makes no difference. There's nothing taking place in your heart. And some of you may even wonder today, why did I even show up for a church service? Because you're not interested in the gospel. But on the other hand, there are people here today, I believe, that are ready to receive the gospel. You're listening to it. It's convicting and it's refreshing to you. You want to hear about Jesus. Well, what's the difference in these two people? The difference is that God has prepared the heart. God prepares the heart to hear the message. God's the one who enables you to understand it. And so the gospel will only take effect in your heart as God enables you to hear it. So when Paul talked to the Corinthians about this, he said, now, you believe this. Obviously, there's something that's taken place here. You are living proof of the effects of the gospel. You've received it as seed into good ground. And so the gospel has taken effect in your life. He says you're saved by it. That's what he says in verse number 2, by which also ye are saved. And so if you want to be saved, the gospel is the only thing that will work. This is all that will do for the salvation of your soul. But that's not all that he says here. Here in the end of verse number 2, he says, unless ye have believed in vain. So next then, the gospel not only is to be received, but it is to be believed. It must be believed. You see, your heart, your mind, uh, your ears can all be opened by God to receive this gospel, but then you have to believe it. You can listen to the gospel, you can hear about it, you can evaluate it, but it's not until you actually believe it, that's when the gospel begins to take effect. So God gets everything ready for you. He prepares your heart for it, but then he tells you, you must repent and believe this gospel. Well, what does it mean to believe? Does it mean that you just acknowledge that all these facts are true? Do you just say, well, yes, uh, there was a man named Jesus. He lived a long time ago, and the Bible says that he lived. And so, yeah, I I believe that. You might even say, well, I I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I could go out today and walk the neighborhoods of Ronan Park up and down each side of the street, And I promise you, I'll find many, many people, if not most of the people who would agree to those statements I've just made. You live here, you know some people might need some prompting to say it, but uh, they would probably agree with everything that I've just said. Does that mean that all these people that agreed to that are saved people? No. There are thousands and even millions of people who say, those are the facts, and I do believe the facts. Saving faith is more than just believing facts. Saving faith is when you take this information down in your soul. This is when you ingest the truth and when the truth becomes a part of you. You just don't say, well, it's true. I believe it. I believe is the operative thing here. Believe actually comes from a word that means to drink. And that's what you have to do with the gospel of Christ. And with Jesus, you must drink him in. Isn't it remarkable that Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, if you drink of this water, speaking of the water of eternal life that he'd give her, he says, you'll never thirst again if you drink of this water. That's what Jesus was teaching. You have to ingest this truth. You must receive his life. And if you don't do that, if it doesn't become a part of you, then you haven't really believed. So saving faith is not giving mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Saving faith is a personal thing. This is when you actually believe that Jesus came personally to save you from your sins. And if there never was another person upon the face of this earth that believed that that was true, you believe it because Jesus came and he died for you. But do you know there are many people that don't preach the gospel that way? They don't think that there was any particular person that Jesus had in mind when he came to die. Jesus just came to this earth for the the mass of humanity. So you just either leave this, take it or leave it. Uh, You're just one in the number of a blob of people out there that Jesus came to die for. Sometimes we complain when the bank or when a merchant or, or when the government just considers us to be nothing more than an account number. Doesn't that bother you when that happens? Well, some people preach the gospel that way. Only it's even worse than that because they didn't think God even took time to assign you a number. But the gospel that I believe and the Christ that I believe in knew everything there is to know about me. Even the very hairs of my head are numbered. Jesus knows exactly who I am and everything about me. You know, I love that song that says, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there And I love it so much because I know that my name's going to be called up there because God wrote my name before the world ever began. And so Jesus came into this world. He knew me specifically, and he came to die for me. Saving faith is in a personal Savior. And that's what makes it different from just reciting all the facts and believing there was an historical person named Jesus. Now, notice that he says here, unless you have believed in vain. Now, pay close attention to me. This means unless you have believed something it did not produce any effects. So here you have a warning against anyone who claims that they are a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet that belief never did anything to them. That belief did not change them. All over America today, there are preachers who, who will tell you this. They'll say, say these words, pray this prayer, say this, and then you'll be saved. Then they give a little presentation, they tell people, just pray the prayer, that's all there is to it, now you're saved. But what about all of those people that did that very thing, that they said that little prayer, and the person said, well, now you're saved, but that person has never had a change take place in their lives. Salvation will produce a change. And if it didn't change you, then you didn't get saved. And so if Jesus has not become the Lord and the ruler of your life, if there's not a a, a sense in your heart, a sensitivity to sin, so there's a change in your life, if you have no desire to live for Christ, you simply did not get saved. So this is a warning for us, not a warning about losing salvation. It's impossible for you to lose your salvation. Paul's not worried about that, and neither am I. What I'm worried about, did you get this thing in the first place? Are you really a believer? Did you ingest this truth? Did you receive it into your heart? Has it changed you? Because if there is no change, there is no salvation. And so I'm very concerned about any church member that comes here and, and you live like the world still and there's never been a change in you. I'm concerned about people that have absolutely no modification of their believer, uh, of, their, of their hearts rather, and of their life once they said they become a believer. What I'm trying to tell you today is no change, no salvation. The preaching of the gospel is the means by which that information gets to you. You must receive it, and you must believe it. There must be a change in you, or there is no salvation. Now, let's go on. We're we're analyzing the gospel, and in the next part, Paul tells us exactly what this gospel is. Next comes the parts of the gospel. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again now. You should have this underlined. This is important. Circle it. Do something. Verse number 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There are three parts to the gospel. All three parts are necessary. They all have to work together, and none works without any other part. The first part of the gospel that Paul presents to us is that there is a substitute for sinners. And this is what he talks about when he says that Christ died. The death of Christ. Christ died for our sins. The difference between gospel and no gospel is that without Christ, you would have to die for your sins. And I don't mean that you could die and do something about them and your sins could be taken away. I simply mean that there is a spiritual death that you are going to encounter, a second death that's going to come if you have not believed Christ as your Savior. But Christ came to die for us. Christ came as a substitute for sins. Romans chapter 3 says, the wages of sin is death. That means the payout for sin, that the penalty for sin is your death. But I want you to look at this because Christ came to do something about your death for sins. Because instead of you eternally dying for your sins, Jesus came to die in your place. How did he do that? Paul says right here, that's according to the scriptures. Now remember the Old Testament scriptures? Paul says the scriptures have something to say about this. They explain what it's all about. And so he used Old Testament scriptures. And there are many, many scriptures that tell us about Christ's death. But let's look at this one in Isaiah chapter 53. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Listen to this last part. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a scripture written 700 years before Christ came and it talks about the death of Jesus Christ. All of the sins of the believer is put upon are put upon Jesus Christ. Now the last part of verse 6 says, "The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all." Now you might want to underline this, "laid on him" Laid there is an intensive verb. And it doesn't mean just lightly laid. It means that the Heavenly Father crushed His Son, Jesus Christ, under the weight of our sins. It was brutal. It was intense. But because Jesus Christ is God, He was able to bear up under those sins. He was able to take all the weight of the sins that was placed upon Him, and He bore them in His own body when he went to the cross of Calvary. And the reason that Jesus did that is so that you would not have to suffer the eternal fires of hell. That's what happens to people who don't believe. They go into hell. But the Bible teaches that Christ came as a substitute for sinners. What's a substitute? Somebody who takes someone else's place. And that's exactly what Christ did. What you would have to suffer, he suffered for you. If you believe that, he suffered for you. Jesus was a literal substitute for literal sins. And so he took the punishment that you and I deserved. And so Jesus, the infinite God, suffered in a finite amount of time. What you and I would have to suffer for an infinite amount of time if we have no one to take this for us. So the gospel begins with that. It's the substitution of Jesus Christ for sinners. The second part of the gospel concerns the symbol for sins, and we find this in the burial of Christ. Did you ever wonder why they buried Jesus? Why isn't it that right after Jesus died on the cross, instead of them taking his body down and preparing it for a burial and putting it into a tomb, why didn't just Jesus die and then just walk off the cross? Why did he just take off and go into heaven? That was the end of it. Why did they have to bury Jesus? Well, there's several reasons. One is that there had to be proof that he was dead. There has to be absolute proof that Jesus Christ, in fact, did die. And then also, the scriptures had prophesied about it. They said that he will be buried. That whole story about Jonah spending three days and three nights in the whale, nights in the whale's belly. You know what it's all about. Well, Jesus told us the explanation of that. He said, just like Jonah spent those three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, he said, I'm going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus had to be buried to fulfill the scriptures. But there's also something else that we find in the burial of Christ, and that's the symbol of what Jesus would do with our sins. Jesus buried our sins, and he buried them so deep that it's impossible for you to dig them up. Where I came from in Kentucky, in the western part of the state, they have these huge strip mines, coal mines. And they've got these shovels there that are so big, they lift hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tons of dirt at one time. Not even one of those shovels can dig deep enough and pull up enough dirt that it could ever uncover my sins that have been buried in Jesus Christ. Every time that we go to a baptismal service over here, we'd have put a person under the water. And that is a symbol that Jesus died. But it's also a symbol that as he died, he took my sins with him. And then when he came up out of uh, of the grave, and when this person comes up out of the water, we're saying that we're rising to walk in the new life of Jesus Christ. There's a picture in that. It says that we've been cleansed from all of our sins. Now, baptism is never going to wash away your sins. If you believe in Jesus, the blood of Christ has already washed away your sins. But baptism is the picture of how that takes place. He was crucified and he was buried. So in the early church, they stressed the fact that Jesus was buried. And so Paul stresses it here. He says that he died, and this is what you believe. He was buried. And it was so important to make sure that everyone clearly understood Jesus was dead. You don't bury people that aren't dead. My sins were buried with Jesus when he went into that tomb. They stayed there, but Jesus didn't. Jesus came out of the grave, and that's why we have a third part of the gospel. And the third part is the strength of salvation, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the strength. It's the entire backbone of the gospel. It says here, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. All parts of this are important. No part works without any other part. But here, Paul concentrates on the resurrection. He grabs hold of this, and he's going to develop that further throughout the rest of this chapter. Now, obviously, I'll have a lot more to say about the resurrection because we're not done with the chapter. The whole chapter deals with the resurrection. We're going to say a lot about it. But let me say this for right now. A dying Jesus on a cross and a dead Jesus in a tomb will not get us to heaven. Jesus must come out of that grave or today I cannot talk to you about salvation. Paul is talking about this in Romans chapter 4. And he says in Romans 4, verse number 25, Who was delivered for our offenses. Jesus was delivered for our offenses. And that means that he was delivered up to the death of the cross But listen to the last part. It says, And was raised again for our justification. Now let me explain to you what he means by raised again for our justification. Every single person in this room today, you have broken God's law. I've broken God's law. And because of our sins, we have to suffer the wrath of the penalty of God for sins. But we've been talking here about how Jesus became a substitute for sins. Jesus took that that punishment for us. And that's so we wouldn't have to experience the justice of God's law. That said that we have to die for our sins. So Jesus satisfied God's law. When God raised Jesus from the dead. That was the sign of God's approval. That sins have been paid for. This was God saying I accept the sacrifice of my son. I accept the blood that he shed. That's the payment for sin. And that's what it means to be justified. God raised him for our justification. So the proof that we are saved is that Jesus rose from the dead and paid the penalty of our sins. That's what our justification is. And so when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have become justified. So that's when the guilty person... You and me as believers, we are declared completely pardoned from our sins. Now, do you see why I say that the, the resurrection is the strength? It's, it's the backbone of salvation. If Jesus did not come out of that grave, it would mean that God did not count anything that Jesus Christ did on our behalf as worth anything at all. It wouldn't work. Salvation without a resurrection does not work at all. But Jesus did die Jesus is not in the tomb. He arose from the grave. And that tells us today, friends, the gospel works. It absolutely does work for you if you will believe it. Now, I have one last statement for your listening sheet today. I mean, I I know this, or I hope this to be true for you personally. Your last statement is, because Jesus lives, I have the strength to live. We must have a living Jesus who is right now in heaven, Because that's the guarantee that we will also live. It's the guarantee that our bodies will come out of that grave. And it will go back to heaven to be with him. Now I want to close the message today in a way that I don't usually do it. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment if you would please. And I just want to ask you today. Have you trusted Jesus? Examine your heart right now and think about this. Do you know for sure that if you died right at this very moment, that you would go to heaven. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. am not going to ask you to do anything other than this. I want you to look into your heart. And I want you to determine right now whether or not Jesus has touched you and whether or not Jesus has changed you. We don't often end the services this way. I don't try to manipulate people for decisions. But I want to pause just a moment here. I want total silence in the end of this message. And I want you to be sure that you're going to heaven. You can know that. You can know it because you have God's infallible guarantee by the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you can go to heaven when you die. I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I just want you to pray silently. We're going to pause for just a minute, and I want you to examine your heart. And if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do that right now. Let's have total silence as you pray. your head still bowed. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to stand in our feet and we're going to sing Jesus paid it all. If you've trusted Jesus Christ today, you need to make that known. You need to let people know that he's your savior. I'm willing today to talk to anyone about salvation. If you want to know what to do next, if Jesus has saved you, you can just come as we begin our sing our invitation today. You can come up here and I'll be happy to talk with you about your salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that you might use the message today. We've had some distractions. And Lord, we know that when the gospel is preached, the devil is always there. He's trying to uh, draw people's attention from what's being said or the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I ask you, Lord, to overcome that today. I ask you that you might speak to someone's heart, open their eyes, open their understanding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may you save some lost sinner this very morning. Speak to us, Lord, in this time of invitation and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.